Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. You know what it is, partner? You got an attitude problem. Oh, I got an attitude problem? Yes. And I'm not the only one who's noticed it, man. Break out your dancing shoes as Phil Strip reviews the two Footloose films, the 1984 original and the 2011 remake. Our judges for this competition are Anna. I used to get such a kick out of watching you work up your sermons. And Jay. He is testing every other day. This podcast episode will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and details of the film. I mean, we're not living in the damn Middle Ages here. We got TV, we got family views. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Anna. And this is our review of the 1984 version of Footloose, starring Kevin Bacon, Lori Singer, Diane Weist, Chris Penn, and John Lithgow. Directed by Herbert Ross on a budget of $8.2 million, grossed over $80 million at the box office, and made a star out of its lead, Kevin Bacon. So, Anna, hard to have been a kid that grew up in the 80s and not be aware of Footloose, I think. If for nothing more than just the soundtrack, but I think the movie too is just one of those 80s staples it 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 is an 80s staple and um honestly the first time i've seen it was to watch it today for this thing wow that is awesome i I have never seen i have never seen it before and i have to say my first reaction was why are all the teenagers wearing old lady shoes Yeah, well, it was 1984, and it was mostly shot in 83. So, I mean, it's a it's a definitely a different fashion era. I think when people think of the 80s, they think of like 1986 to 1988. They don't really think of the early 80s. That's because it has a lot more in common with the 70s than it does, you know, the the typical 80s. But that is amazing that you grew up and did not see this. I had no idea you were going to say that. It's a total shot. Like, really, folks, like sometimes we plan this stuff out. I had no idea, and I'd never seen this before. So that's, I I can't imagine that because I remember seeing this. I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I know I saw it on, you know, the cable stuff that was out at the time. And I know we rented it and watched it. And I had a VHS copy that I had taped off a of Showtime or HBO or one of those you know, free weekend things once. And I remember watching it constantly. So I, even if you hadn't seen it, you had to have been aware of some of it though, right? I was, I was aware of it and the soundtrack and the song. I mean, every time, like as a teenager, when an eighties weekend came on, they always played footloose. And I know, um, Kenny Loggins did top, top gun. And he, for a while he was the staple for, if you wanted an 80s soundtrack, but, um, he had a couple yeah. of big ones. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like this and, um, well, not not even not even our first time with him. If you go way back to like oh, the original series, yeah, you and I did Caddyshack way back in the day. So uh, this is not even our first Kevin Bacon either. Now, I, uh, uh, Nick and I broke that one with uh, Trimmers uh, last year or year before last. But uh, yeah, you and I've done Kenny Loggins, uh, you know, '80s theme tune film before. But this one is definitely much more about the the songs, and this is. 
just the rise of MTV and the popularity of that. And we're going to talk about it when we get into this because a lot of this plays like an old music video, you know, would before before it was Miley Cyrus swinging on, you know, uh, wrecking balls naked with a sledgehammer and stuff. Kids, they, there was something else to the music videos. And a lot of times they looked a lot like this movie. Well, Jay, why are we even reviewing Footloose? <laughs> Footloose is one that stood out to me because this movie, as of the you know recording of this and release of it in 2014, is 30 years old and it was 27 years old when it got its remake finally in 2011 and we'll we'll talk about that one later but I, I just think it's one of those that's ripe for it it's been a while since I had watched it before watching it for this review but I remember it vividly and uh, my opinion on it has changed a bit because I, I see it from a different light now as an adult than I did when I was you know a kid and a teenager and stuff. But I think that's one of the, the neat things about the movie. You can watch it and, and it grows on you a little bit. And I think the story is still ripe. And so the fact that they wanted to go back and do it again, I was curious to see how that would work. And we'll get into the remake. But it's fun to go back and look at these old films like this because, you know, that's something about when you revisit stuff from your childhood. It's always dangerous, right? Like you could love it still or you could realize wow this is a really crappy thing why did i ever like this and so it's always dangerous to retread old familiar ground but can be for fun podcasts it can be and i keep i i this is the carry diaries i know why now i carry <laughs> bradshaw moved to new york <laughs> she started out in a uh, small texas town so all this I understand now that whole <laughs> that whole shtick about be, being in Connecticut and stuff now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the Square Pegs uh, era, Sarah Jessica Parker, if if you will. So what, there are a lot of those kind of people in this. We'll, we'll have to talk about this, the co-stars, and I, I suppose her and Chris Penn were the two that you saw again somewhere. I, I, we'll, we'll talk about that as we go. But yeah, uh, definitely some young Hollywood here in the eighties, but I guess it's right that we go ahead with a plot summary here. So I'll do that. Ren McCormick's father's death prompts he and his mother to relocate from the hustle and bustle of Chicago to the small Texas town of Beaumont, where his decidedly urban ways cast him immediately as an outsider. And though he's able to make a few friends, including local goofball Willard and Jock Woody, Ren is intrigued by Ariel Moore, the preacher's daughter whose own brand of rebellion is manifested by her dating local redneck Chuck and dancing in public, even though she knows how her father feels about it. See, a few years earlier, her brother, along with other kids were killed after a night of partying and that's when the town of Beaumont banned dancing, rock and roll music and put the tightest reins on their children led by Reverend Moore and the town council. Ren and Ariel get closer after he beats uh, boyfriend Chuck in a chicken race with tractors that we are going to have to talk about. And the two, along with Willard and his girl Rusty, played by Sarah Jessica Parker, go to the city one night for fun and dancing. Reverend Moore confronts Ariel about her wild behavior, blaming, blaming McCormick, whom he barely even knows. And the father and daughter have a nasty fight that opens up the Reverend's eyes to the pain and dissonance of his adolescent teenager. Seeing townsfolk trying to burn books they deem inappropriate continues to change the heart of the minister and he meets with Bryn, who has gotten a petition together to lift the ban on dancing so the senior class can have a prime. He and Wren bond over their losses, and while the town council votes down the dance, the place where Wren works in a neighboring town of Basin allows the dance to happen. So we see the kids enjoying a fun night together while the Reverend and his wife watch 
in distance, happy for the children and finally at peace with their own loss. And the senior class dances the night away as the credits roll. And that's that's a short summary. There's a lot more that happens in there. There's some iconic stuff I didn't specifically point out, but I know we'll get to as we talk about this thing. But I, I think the first thing is we really kind of need to set the stage of the characters here. And the, the first one off the bat is Kevin Bacon, Ren McCormick. You know, I mean, talk, talk about your early 80s teen idol look i mean he he had on the slick clothes the skinny new wave tie the punky spiked up david bowie haircut i think even his mom calls that out at one point i mean it was a, uh, it's definitely like my brother's era of people it's more of what i associate this with than like what i would know but it, decidedly 80s no doubt right yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> I, it's not it's not the good eighties, it's the bad eighties. But um what I, I found I find so interesting about this character, like you just not so much the character, but Kevin Bacon as the actor, mm-hmm. is that look at some of the stuff he's been known for in his forties, like wild things with uh, Denise Richards and Nev Campbell and Matt Dillon and the show he's doing now, the following where he's following the serial killer. I I, I was thinking about that watching this movie and I'm like, how did he ever recover from this (laughs) to get to that point? And I thought about some of the stuff he did in between, like in the early nineties, like I think he did this one. She's having a baby or he said, she said, or both those. He did both of those. Yeah. He did both of those so, and kind of that romantic comedy thing. And it never really took uh, took off. But later in his career, he really I think he's kind of found his niche with this playing these kind of not nece- not necessarily squeaky clean good guys and heartthrobs like he did these grittier characters with a little more substance. I, you've hit on it. I mean, he spent years trying to shed the the tiger beat teeny bop. I mean, he, he hated it. That's the thing is, and he hated it for a long time. Cause that was not what he saw in the character. It's not what he you know, liked now in recent years. And I mean, in the last decade or half or so, he softened a lot on this. Like he went on the today show and did the little reunion and he and his brother have a little band. And like he used to, he hates the song, but like they'll break it out and play it every now and then just to mess with people. And though he tells this great story that like when he goes to weddings, he tips the DJ, like an extra 50 bucks to please God don't play <laughs> Footloose because I can't do all that anymore and I didn't really do half of it to begin with. So, I, yeah, I mean, he, he definitely had to fight to get away from this. I think the way he did was taking on those gritty urban kind of indie roles. And I know, and it took him like, because I remember Wild Things was in, um when I was in high school, it was in the late 90s when I was in high school. Yeah. So I remember that, but that took him a good 10, 15 years to kind of, shed that that image and kind of shed that romantic comedy team you know because you start out as a team heartthrob you progress to romantic comedy and then you know then what and he it took him a long time to shed that kind of image and i i really actually i really applaud him for that yeah he's going out of his way to do it i'll say this about kevin bacon he is an incredibly versatile actor and not nearly as appreciated as he deserves yeah. I, I happen to love the following that show that he's on now uh-huh. and, but i'm trying to think of things i've seen him in that i just didn't at least enjoy what he was doing and, and as a horror fan too of course I, I have the you know the greatest you know we'll never know how it was but he was the screen test shot when they were going to redo nightmare on elm street they had him as freddie 
for a short oh, time wow. and then he walked away from it. But I, oh, if he could have done that. But yeah, I think that's that's what he's good at is he can mask and be a lot of things. He's a good character actor. But this is in you know, the, the highlight of his time. He was trying out for a lot of different roles and he, you know, he had to beat out or wade through a lot of people that wanted this thing. I mean, the, the list of people that could have played this role, I mean, you had Tom Cruise, Rob Lowe was cast, basically. And they, oh, I, can, I can see Rob Lowe. Yeah, but he wound up hurting his knee, and that kept him out of it. And do you know what got Bacon in this role? He tried out for Christine and this at the same time, and he took this instead of Christine. And now Nick and I reviewed Christine. I can imagine him and Christine. That just would be so weird to see him in a, in that you know, cheesy horror movie versus this, and which is you know, a much more dramatic role. I think it, it gets misunderstood as it's this teen 80s rock dance film. This is not Step Up to the Streets. I mean, it's got a lot of that in it, but there's a lot more here, too. And a lot of that is on Bacon as, as Ren. But we'll talk more about him as we go. I want to talk about the, uh, not necessarily Ariel next. I want to talk about Reverend Moore, John Lithgow, because the famous story about this is while in between breaks of shooting this, he went and shot this little thing called Terms of Endearment and he won an Academy Award for it. And that really launched his career too. And I'll, I'll reserve my judgment for later. But one good thing I will say about this is for a typical teenage tiger beat kind of movie, the acting was actually halfway decent, if not pretty good, which is, I mean, think of some of the stuff, I think of some of the stuff that um, I watched as a teenager, like, uh, oh gosh, was, and I actually like this movie, but going back and looking at it now, I might think it's the stupidest movie ever is, um, I think it's She's All That with yeah. Freddie Prince Jr. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I mean, looking back, I might be like, oh, what was I thinking? But, um, but you know, the acting's not that great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in in I'm trying to think of something else like Scream. Yeah. The acting's not that great. I mean, when Courtney Cox is your best actress, <laughs> and nothing is Courtney Cox, but still, um, it's yeah. not that it's not that good. So, but the, I was really impressed, and especially since these were a lot of break breakout roles for these people that yep. you can tell. You can tell they're really young. You can tell they're just kind of getting their start, and this is their breakthrough role. I was really, really Im- impressed. I was really, really impressed with it. Now, I, as the character re- for Reverend Moore, I, I was just, I was, number one, I was flabbergasted that this whole town just blindly followed him. I'm like, really, there is not a liberal in this town who is going <laughs> to question you? Really? I mean, I know no. it's te- I mean, I know it's Texas and it's a small town, but I grew up in a small town in Alabama and there was at least one or two liberals who'd question and be like, okay, why are we doing this? This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. There's no one, there's no one up at the school board pitching a fit because they're burning books. Really? Well, and what's funny is you watch the, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, the liberalization of this very conservative minister over yeah. the course of this film. This, this, I mean, you see that, that ideal as he, if he starts to apply, you know, set aside logic for just a minute and being so objective and disconnected when he starts to really pay attention to people, how he changes. 
And then that's the other point. It's and it goes through the. This just frustrated me. I, I the writing I did not think was bad, and the acting I did not think was bad at all. But this whole plot just drove me absolutely insane because he goes through this whole thing, and you know when they're going across the bridge, and Ariel's like, "Hey, this is where my brother died," mm-hmm. and, and it's like. Did no one, even if you're a conservative or a liberal, did no one realize this poor guy was in mourning and he's inflicting he's inflicting this this mourning and this kind of psychosis on the whole town? And no one was like, hey, and then his wife didn't speak up until right now. I mean, I just wanted to slap these people. Well, well you, you again, you have to look at what it was. And that's the thing. And it's something that w- it'll be interesting to pay attention to when we get into the... Uh, remake to see how they play it because the, the, essentially the remake is modern timesing it and we can't imagine a, a town like where this will happen you know yeah. but in the early 80s things like that yeah I can totally buy this because I knew towns like this not so much that the preacher ruled with an iron fist this isn't children with the corn or, or children of the corn or anything like that but it's more this idea that everybody gets behind the moral majority and they just decide to sort of feign that one way or the other and it often happens in times of tragedy and and the not so much the kids dying bit, but there was a town in Oklahoma, not far from the guy who wrote this thing, where somewhere he had connection to, where they banned dancing, rock music, all that stuff in the late seventies, early eighties, and he was just fascinated by that idea, right? And I so, know. and so, I can see how that goes. I'll tell you though, all of that would be awful to watch, and you would hate this reverend if it wasn't played with such earnestness and yeah. softness the way Lithgow plays things. And he can play anything. I mean, that guy's been on television and movies for years. He's done good and bad stuff, but he's almost always in cat. Um, he's almost always fun to watch whatever he does. And I, I dig him as the Reverend. And I think he brings a different layer to it. You know, you mentioned his wife, Diane Weist has always played somebody's mom. Like in my whole life. And the, the, I think well, the, no, no, not on Law and Order. She was the D before Fred Thompson. She was the DA. That's another thing I couldn't connect because that's what I know her from. Well, see, this- I know her as always playing the mom in films like this, The Lost Boys, other stuff like that. Parenthood. She was always somebody's mom. I mean, it's just sort of what she is. The funny thing is she's only like seven or eight years older than Lori Singer, who's her daughter, her teenage daughter in this film. But they yeah. definitely play her as older than she really is. You can tell she's she's a lot younger younger than she goes. But you know what? Her as the minister's wife, I totally buy this because I've known a lot of minister's wives and they don't speak up. They don't say, I mean, she even has that whole speech about I've been a good minister's wife. You know, she doesn't cause problems. She doesn't say anything or whatever, but they almost always had that same kind of personalized communication way that they could talk to their minister husbands and bring them back down to earth. We, we get to that when, when we get to her, I guess we got to talk about Ariel, Lori Singer, who I only know from this. I know she had a career outside of this. I've never seen anything else. IMDb. She's a cellist. Okay, yeah, I've never seen her in anything else. I know she like produces now and has has acted for a long time, but yeah. this was sort of my one shot with her. I only knew her for this, and I think there's a lot of eighties teen films that there was you know here's the female lead, and they just never took off, you know uh but i you know she has always been the thing I've bumped up against with this film. I've never really cared for her, and it'll be interesting to see if this time I've changed my mind on it or whatever but i I had a real hard time with her growing up. I never cared for her much well, maybe that's why her career never really took off like Sarah Jessica Parker or like Kevin Bacon or even like Chris Penn, because mm. the, the, I see what you're saying as someone watching this for the first time. I've, 
I feel I feel her pain, but she's not a very likable. She's not very likable as an act. I don't know if it's her as an actress or it was this char- character or what. Maybe on the second one, maybe on the second one, it'll make more sense with a different actress. But she's just not very. She's not very likable. Like you don't really feel. You don't really feel sorry for her. It's but it, even though she's been imposed this. She's you know the minister's daughter and. He talks about how how can how can I tell my congregation to impose a curfew when I can't even impose one on my own own daughter and I don't think her um her like she does a lot of uh, I don't want to call them soliloquies but she does a lot of really dr- more dramatic acting kind of than Kevin she does a lot of monologues kind of like she's pleading with her father father in the church mm-hmm. and you know telling them kind of confessing all her sins and he's like this isn't the place well I thought and, and she doesn't really resonate and maybe that that's why I think you've hit on it a lot of it is in the performance and there's specific things I just don't care for about it and I don't know if it was just that, that take and what they went with or how she chose to play it. There's just things about Ariel that make her hard to like. She's alluring. She's she's very pretty and stuff and you could see why you know that would be the the catch. But I is yeah. Did you notice how tall she is? Yeah, she's incredibly tall. Like that's the other thing. Yeah, because she she was not first off. She looked like she was a foot taller than Sarah Jessica Parker, and she's like five foot five two. Yeah, and then she looks kind of eye to eye, almost eye to eye with Kevin Bacon, and I think he's a pretty tall guy too. Bacon's almost six feet tall, which for a an actor is is really tall. Yeah, that's tall for for most Hollywood actors. So yeah, she's definitely right up there with him, and I think that's the other thing that makes. her different is she's a different kind of beauty and leading lady she's sort of got that daryl hannah thing going on you know because she's really tall and all that so she's also noticed too and i'm not i'm not being i'm not being judgmental or want to get on anything about body type but she also was really she almost had like a model figure yeah she's very thin yeah it's very thin very tall kind of no bust no butt something like that she almost had a figure like a like a model so yeah. i don't i like don't know really, like a really tall figure skater is sort of how i've always envisioned her that's kind of how she looks so yeah yeah so but yeah i guess we should just get into the movie now we can we can go back to our big characters here the big three as we get into this thing but the opening credits to this have always been something that stood out to me all the dancing shoes and apparently it's none of the actors that you see it, i think the director makes a cameo in there and the writer and uh, the rest of them are just professional dancers feats but it's uh, uh, feats. nice nice word it's professional <laughs> dancers feet but i like the sort of montage of shoes that we get i don't know why it's- oh no I, li- I like the opening credits i was i was actually pleasantly surprised by it i, I kind of watching it i'm like what what is this and then i kind of like i kind of like the opening credits part of it is that infectious beat of that song yeah. too like, and then the shoes yeah. going with it and then <clears throat> And then changing, you know, from male to female to, you know, high heels to sneakers to this and all the different people and how it's and I I think it kind of sets the tone because it's kind of how 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 dancing can unite unite people. That's what I took from it. Yeah. And the funny thing is, like of the, the songs that are primarily featured in this 
film, the writer, mm-hmm. Dean Pitchford, co-wrote every one of them with either the artist or the artist people or whatever to do it. Like he, oh. he co-wrote Footloose. He co-wrote Let's Hear It For The Boy. He co-wrote Holding Up For A Hero with Jim Steinman. He co-wrote The Tune with Sammy Hagar. I mean, he, he didn't co-wrote uh, Mental Health, Metal Health by, by uh, Quiet Riot. I think that was already done. But he, you know, he co-wrote all these tunes. So he had a hand in it. That's such a rare thing, you know, when you have somebody that writes the film and also gets to write the songs unless they're adapting a musical or something and the history of this film turning into that is long (coughs) after this so that's one of the neat things but i like how they do introduce us to that and again it puts me in a memory of what early mtv was all about it was about kids dancing and just poppy happy music and kenny loggins rocking tunes and stuff and then and i love the stark end of it you end on that big you know and then you're in stark middle of nowhere, you know, and John Lithgow is preaching to his congregation. And I love this sermon. He is testing us because I have heard this sermon in different wording, but same concept growing up many times. This idea of the things that are out there to tempt us in the world. It's there to test us and it's to test our faith and all this. And you really get an idea without them telling you anything. You have no idea what's going on. You get the whole setup of the town, the situation, all of it in this one scene. Cause you get, you get Ren and his mother sitting in church. He obviously looks different than everybody else. You've got all the rest of the, the parishioners there. You've got the girls painting their fingernails and looking at the cute boy. You've got the one kid that's asleep. His dad has to wake up. And you've got Lithgow up there firing away from that pulpit. And I, I don't know. It just I, it reminded me of so many places I grew up going to church when I was younger. Well, I think like, like myself, it, it's any any small town, especially in the South, you're going to and any kind of Protestant, kind of like a Baptist Presbyterian Methodist kind of mm-hmm. kind of thing like that. You've heard that sermon. I've heard, I've heard that sermon. I've, I've gone to the, my, my mom and dad have gone to the same church since I was three years old, and I have heard that sermon by <laughs> multi, uh, many times by multiple different preachers through Sunday school, through this and that, and vacation Bible school. It, it, I think it's you're going to hear that mm-hmm. if you grow up in a small in a small town, especially one of these kind of hellfire and brimstone kind of towns. Yeah, so that's the thing though about this one that I like that it's not all hellfire and brimstone. Like that's certainly in there, mm-hmm. but what he's saying is that, like, look, the reason we're you know he essentially lays out that the reason this town is so strict, the reason we are about these things is because we we want to protect you from all the evils of the world, and we know we can't do it forever, so we've got to teach you right now. And the way to excuse me, the way to teach you right now is to keep you from all this stuff. And isn't that what uh, you're a parent, Anna? So I'm asking you, isn't that kind of the plight of every parent? Is that well, the best way to keep my kid out of trouble is to try to just shield them from even knowing that it exists, which is impossible to do, right? Right. And I'm probably the wrong person to ask <laughs> I, I, because I, I take a different mm-hmm. I take a different approach to my kids, and I see people, and as a parent, mm-hmm. and seeing other parents, I see people like this all the time. Right. That are so protective of their kids. I see it from the age I have young children in school all the way to coworkers who have, have high schoolers and college age kids. And um, I've had a coworker who told me um, that, and to make a long story short, and I've kind of taken that advice to heart is that you've got to train your kids and you've got to let them 
lead their own path. And it, and it kind of sounds a little new age and, and I'm sure parents to hear this, like, Oh gosh, our kids are going to do this. But I think back to when I was that age and Oh shoot, hold on, okay. hold on. Hold on. Uh, hold on. My thing came out. Okay. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Yeah, and I think back to that age and I think about, and I think now that it's even easier to have a hold than it was in 1984. Cause you've got GPS. <laughs> yeah, you've you got, can your I, mean, I, I mean, I do that to my, my um, eight year old daughter. I, I love Jack her because I, on her iPhone, because I'm, I'm like, if I have her by myself. Oh, you just said your eight-year-old daughter has, <coughs> has an iPhone. Yeah. We're in a different world than, than we were I, when we grew up. So. I mean, I got her, I got her low, I got her low jacked and all kinds of stuff. And I mean, well, she, I mean, it's not like she takes it to school, but you, still. You know what, you know what though? That's, that's funny that you mentioned that though, because that it does show the difference in the way things are then to now is that this is the beginning of the era of what was known as the latchkey kids, you know, yeah. kids whose parents worked or they were part of single families, things like that. And they would sort of have their own run of things. They just had to go and they were responsible for themselves. And it was just a different world that we lived in. And it was the fear of every, you know, every parent that had a teenager in the eighties. I remember my brother and my folks and stuff. If what are they doing when I'm not right there with them? But yet, yet at the time there was no way to stay on top of that and stuff. So it, right. that's the thing about this film that if you're, if you're much younger, and you try to watch this one, I wonder how it relates to you. It's probably something you would have to watch with your parents, I think, just so you can well, get a frame of reference. Well, that's a good a good thing, because I don't think this res- – it, it might and it might not, but I don't think this resonates today. Yeah. Because parents will – I mean, like even I said, I've got LoJack on a kid. <laughs> and um, But the thing is, with that being said, and I think about as she's a teenager and, you know, going through her phone and going – now it's easy to do. She's eight. She mm. doesn't know any better. But what, what about when she's 18, when she's – 15. Mm-hmm. And I think about that, but I think of all the parents that I have seen that have tried to control their children and have tried to put them in this box and it, it, it never ends up good. And then I, I think back to when I was that age and I'm like, they're kind of missing something. Mm-hmm. We kind of learned when we snuck around behind our parents and our parents didn't know, you know, we, as a, the case in this movie, you were dancing to rock and roll music and, um, we kind of snuck they kind of snuck around and we learned we learned from our mistakes it drives me nuts in this day and age where parents won't let their kids make a mistake Mm. so uh, so okay they're 22 years old they're out of college and they've never made a mistake what are they going to do then yeah what are what are they going to do when they get fired from that job or there's layoffs or budget cuts or what are they going to do when they're in grad school and they don't get that perfect grade that they're used to getting? What are they going to do then? Are they going to fall apart? Are they going to be lost? Are you going to be at square one? What are, what are you going to do? So I, I kind of take a different approach to parenting where I don't want my kids to run around the neighborhood wild and free doing God only knows what. But I do know there are times that they're going to lie to me and they're going to sneak around and they're going to outsmart me. But hopefully, if I've raised them correctly, that they will learn from those experiences. Right. You brought up something there that's a good transition point to this is that the tighter you try to put the, the fence or the uh, around the kid, the, the more you inventive ways they're going to find ways to break out of it. And we get that right after church here. Ren and his mother, who are from Chicago, they just got into town like that day to, you know, they're, they're staying with, um, 
her sister and husband and kids and stuff till they get back on their feet because his dad has passed away. And, you know, this is a time when not women are not working. They don't have careers like they do today. And obviously we get that her mom doesn't. And so they've moved there and they're meeting the, the reverend or whatever. And he introduces them to his wife and then his daughter. And, you know, what does his daughter do? Hey, we're going to go grab a soda real quick. OK, we'll be home because it's a school tomorrow, you know. And what do they do? Her and Sarah Jessica Parker and her other two friends that I don't know uh, from anything else go riding down the road. And what are they doing? They're having a, you know, conversations about contraception, about some girl that got knocked up and kicked out of school for it. And I mean, they, they're talking about everything that their parents don't want them to even know about. And I think that's that's done on purpose is to show you no matter what you preach and do and stuff, people as they evolve are curious and learn about things on their own. And they obviously are, are way more beyond where their parents think they are at this point, even before the little stunt comes up. Right. And I, that's one um, that's one thing that irks me about this movie, too, <laughs> was that, oh, my gosh, the parent, all the adults just were so dumb. <laughs> I mean, I mean, none of them thought to and I mean, kind of going back to the Ren character, too. None of them thought to set, you know, when he's getting in all this trouble and the kids are like setting them up. Yeah. I mean, I thought actually at the beginning, and he ha- at the beginning he was adjusting really well. Like you know, he's made friends with Willard, kind of the goofy hick. Yeah. And then he made friends with the jock who who can apparently beat everybody up. Yeah, he pissed off the Chuck guy, mm-hmm. and um and he was making friends like like Ariel and Rusty, <laughs> Sarah Jessica, who was Sarah Jessica Parker were all interested in him and asked him to come sit with them at the table. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he was adjusting really well. And then old Chuck gets in there and throws a monkey wrench and just get his start. And he's really the troublemaker. And that's one thing. That's what drove me nuts. Everybody's like, well, oh, all the adults are like, oh, I hear that, you know, trouble's been following you around and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I mean, in this day and age where like, there's so much about school bullying and everything and helicopter parents. None of the parents went, went, hey, hey, it's not your fault. It's Chuck's fault. Chuck's well, see, the, well, see that's, Chuck. the, that's the thing about this, though. That's that's the deal is everybody's going to take the local kid side versus the new city boy, right? And let's yeah. face it, too, and, and I'm, I'm not dogging her because she's certainly got her own problems or whatever going on. Ren's mom's not exactly heavily involved in his life. You know, it's it's only later in the film they finally have a decent conversation with each other. And it's not like they're antagonistic to one another. They just don't seem to talk. And I think a lot of that is they're both hurting right now. You know, they, they both have dealt with a loss, and they don't know what to do, and they're confused and trying to figure it out on their own. I mean, she's trying to put her life back together. He's trying to just survive his senior year so he can get the hell out of there. Right. You know, and, and he's got all the, you know, normal teen angst that, that comes along with it before he ever has to start racing tractors and all that goofy stuff. So, but the, the thing that it got me was how these girls, you know, th- they've done all this stuff to try to protect them. And none of these are what I would call your innocent, virginal you know girl in terror at all like they all seem to know their way around whatever they need to and then that leads to that's when we meet chuck right is ariel and her little you know now we know it as the jean-claude van damme commercial doing the splits between the two cars down the highway but i I don't know if they stole it from this but it that popped in my head as i was watching the scene again because i'd forgotten this was how we're introduced to chuck 
you know, and, and she's riding and doing that crazy stunt. And I remember reading so many different articles about kids, you know, that were older than me, but doing things like this and it, you know, it costing them. And then that was always the cautionary tale that somebody knew somebody's kid that had done this one stupid thing. So you're no longer allowed to look left when you cross the street, you know, like that's, that's how everybody overreacts to it. Yeah. And I, I just thought of when I was that age <laughs> and I mean, I, I didn't do a Jean-Claude thing on the car, but I mean, I've, I'll look back. I've done questionable stuff looking back after 10, 20 years. And I'm like, Oh gosh, what, what was I thinking? I really hope my kids don't do this and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this and honestly, this is the lamest town ever. <laughs> I mean, even their rebellion is lame. All they want to do is dance. And I mean, I know they've got the drinking and the pot smoking in there and the sex, but Oh my God. I thought of Friday night lights when, um, what's your, Oh, Tara. Yeah. Tara threw the bonfire or whatever out in the field after homecoming and charged (laughs) people for it. I'm like the kids at Friday night lights could kick these kids asses. (laughs) They definitely could. But that's the thing is this. I mean, they're so late. They're old. They're sitting there stomping their feet in old lady shoes. Well, but again, we're we're applying our you know knowledge and the way we grew up in the we were teenagers in the nineties. We were kids in the eighties. Teenagers in the eighties just acted different than we did. It, it really there was a freedom that came along in the late eighties with kids that changed the way that we all did things and and it's the same today. Like why kids have such a different life today than you and I did. You know, they look at what we did and think it's really hokey. It's the same thing here, but for these kids, this would be major rebellion. They're listening to rock and roll music. They're playing video games. They're dancing around drinking soda, you know, and, and, and let's face it here. Ariel for a, a preacher's kid, you know, the, the typical preacher's daughter, you know, uh, stereotype. She clearly has, has been around the block, learned how to dance a little bit. I mean, she's, I mean, she's no dancing with the stars, but she can move and she can move like people in the eighties would. So I bought it. I actually, I thought it was kind of cute. Maybe they should cast her next cycle since she hadn't been up to anything. (laughs) Well, we'll, uh, we'll talk about who they cast next time. But I, you know, the thing about me is it, the thing for this that, that I like is that if you're going to set up a character that is the wild child, the rebel or whatever, you have to have her do things that are beyond just the nor- what I would consider normal teenage stuff, you know, where like she stays out a little bit late or maybe, you know, gossips with her friends or whatever. This girl really is like on the edge and stuff like she does borderline suicidal things you know, throughout this film, but that, and that's just the first one of them. There is the little stunt with the, uh, with Chuck and the truck and all that stuff. <laughs> Maybe subconsciously she thinks that's the only way she's going to get out of that town and or movie. Well, you know what? I think you're, I think you've hit onto that because she and Rusty have a conversation later about, you know, she's, I think Rusty says something to her along the lines of like, you, you memorize, you know, train schedules to get out of here. And she looks at her and like, like you don't like, there's this need to get away, right? I just want to get out, do anything for excitement. And this is her idea of excitement. But what's the best part of this to me is the way she gets busted by her dad, right? Like he just walks up and hits the, when he turns off the boom box, it's like everything else in the drive-in shuts down. You know, the video came, all of it. And everybody just sort of stops like, <gasps> and have you ever been somewhere when you got, you know, you saw somebody get busted by the parent or maybe that was you, you got busted by your folks. Oh, that's it's like the worst feeling ever. You sort oh, of yeah. fall under the concrete. 
Oh yeah, it's bad. Yeah, so I liked it, though, but I liked how Lithgow played it. He didn't like go off on her. He didn't freak out. You know, your mother didn't think you had any money, so he just started walking away. You know, and that look on his face—it's the look of disappointment, right? And right. it's like, I, how can I, you know, say all this Sunday, and then I come out here and here's my daughter, you know, dancing in the streets, essentially. So I, I don't know. I, um, I thought that was well played though. And it's, it gave us a, a good idea of who Errol was supposed to be and how these kids really were in this town in spite of all the rules and stuff that they had. Yep. It sure did. <laughs> That's all I have. <laughs> well, I think we need to talk about the dare on the tractors next, because uh, one of the more iconic scenes of the film is Ariel lets uh, uh, Ariel and Chuck or no Chuck and Wren have a little encounter in a parking lot or, or something I, they try to back into each other or whatever and exchange a few words. So Chuck decides, um, okay, you got to come out to my dad's farm you know, this weekend and we're going to race tractors at each other until somebody well, flinches and moves. Right? No, doesn't he send Ariel to tell Ren, like, hey, Chuck wants to see you at 530. And, oh, oh, no, she volunteers. And he goes, well, why did you come? She goes, oh, I volunteer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's um, that whole idea that she acts like she doesn't care anything about him because she is so self-obsessed and getting out of town or whatever. But clearly she likes him and, and wants to see what he's all about. And this whole dare on the tractors thing, in a lot of ways, is just the duel for her. I think that's how it's played, at least. And I don't know. I always remember this scene, though, thinking to myself, how insane do you have to be to try to do this? Well, I'm I'm sorry. I grew up out in the middle of nowhere like this, uh. and it is lame. No one would ever do that. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, I grew up. Yeah, yeah. Let's go cow tipping. Okay, <laughs> let's go roll somebody's yard. Okay, but no. Number one, a tractor is a lot more expensive piece of equipment than a car. Yeah. So you know what? You might be able to get your dad's car and souped up engine and and you know race it, but you're not going to get a tractor. And two of and, them, two of them, and that. two of them. Who has two tractors in Appear- this? Ta- Apparently, the fire chief Cranston. So fire chief and, be pulling down some dough in that town. And I, I mean, I just thought this was the lamest. Like, I, I let me let me say this on um. I think it was three, the Tokyo drift fast and the furious when they're basically doing the same thing. Like they're, (laughs) and they come right out and say it like, dude, I'm racing for this girl. And they're basically racing now. Now that is cool. This (laughs) is lame. And it's two, it's two tractors. And the only reason he won bless his heart is because it's Kevin Bacon's shoestring got caught. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Like the whole thing is somebody's supposed to flinch, jump off, get out of the way. Right. And Kevin Bacon is ready to jump. Like, he tries to jump until he realizes he can't. And so he just holds on. How does that make him a hero? (laughs) Yeah, and then they play that hero song. Yeah. And I I don't get it. I mean, I really don't. I'm like, if anything, he's just scared to death. I think Chuck is surprised somebody stood up to him. But really, Ren didn't stand up to him. Ren was trying to get off the tractor. Because even he was like, this is stupid. Why did I get myself into this? I don't even care. And then yeah. that's my question is, why would he even care? He's got maybe, maybe six, seven months in that town. He's got to survive. And then he can, he's gone. You know, he's- well, when Ariel goes to see him and mm-hmm. tell him, 
tells him to be there at 5.30, he goes, well, what if I don't show up? And she's like, well, everybody will know you're you're a wuss. And yeah, it's every- like, if everybody in town will know you're the biggest yellow belly that ever was. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, and- well, why does he care? <laughs> He's not from there. And so, I know, I just thought it was the lamest. Like, I could see him, like, in Greece. Mm-hmm. Greece is a musical. Like, it's more of a musical than this to a certain degree. And um, where they do the they do the drag racing, right? The I, Road, I can, yeah. yeah, that's cool. And that was like t- uh, that was like five years, five six years before. Oh, better yet, it's set thirty years before though. That's the thing. Yeah, is it, and, but it's played for different reasons. That's what gets me is I get this scene, I get the idea that we have to somehow or another turn Ariel on to Ren, and what turns her on to him is the fact that he doesn't let Chuck scare him off the tractor. It, that he did. So. But that's the thing. We didn't need this mm-hmm. scene. We didn't need to turn those two on because she, they, her, she and her friends were talking about in the car before she tried to do a Jean Claude Van Damme. Yeah. They were talking about him and stuff. And she's the rebellious preacher's daughter. She, she's gonna go for the new mysterious moody outsider who just moved into town. She's going to do that just to piss her dad off. I know. I was like, she's, sleep- so- she's sleeping with Chucky anyway. It's not like she can't just break it off with him. Cause that's essentially what she does for yeah, the new guy. You can have everything else that happens between them. The fact that he beats her up, all that stuff could still go oh, down yeah. and have never had the tractor fight. It could have been one of those things. Like, honestly, the way I've always retconned this in my head, if I'm going to rewrite it is do what people did when I was that age. You said, you're going to show up behind the movie theater you know and we're gonna fight and Ren just doesn't yeah. show up because wh- again why would he care and everybody's like dude you totally stood up Cranston why would you do that and he's like because I don't care and that turns her on even more that he's so just like done with it all that that's yeah. why she, that that works better for me this seems like a pointless action scene in the middle of a drama that doesn't need to be there Yes, I agree. It was lame. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not the only one, and we'll get to the other one in a minute. But we talk now. We see Ren's life start to fall apart. He has this great hero moment, and then you know some douche at school tries to give him a joint, and a teacher catches him with it, and he flushes it down the toilet, and they kick him off the you know gymnastics squad. Which why would a town in Texas have a gymnastics squad? And furthermore, Kevin Bacon's like six <clears throat> foot tall. He's yeah. like six foot tall. He's too tall to be a gymnast. Yeah, I was like, he's he's an athletic looking dude, sure, but no. Like, so- could it not not be I hate to go back to Greece, but could it not be like Greece and be the track team? Yeah, something. Yeah, that would have made more sense. Like the hey. the gymnast thing only pays off in that one scene later that is coming right after this. But I don't know why it's there. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. No. It dr- but it does drive him crazy because he is sitting at home then, and Uncle is talking to him about I'm hearing all these problems and blah blah blah. And of course that pisses him off because it actually would. Because I thought Bacon had a great line there about you figure where there's smoke, there's fire. And he's like, so you just never even bothered to ask me, you know. And and it it bugged him. And so he, you know, he says I'd never try to take the place of your dad. And he's like, don't don't worry, you know. And he storms off and. This is this thing, though, I think most people, if they've just seen pieces of this, know about this. The angry dance in the abandoned mill. Uh, yeah. I, I'm i going to tell you, I've never really felt you know, strongly about this. When growing up, I kind of got, I think it was, you know, he was blown off steam. That's what it's supposed to be. But now you watch it and I'm oh, okay, oh, okay. 
there are a lot more productive ways to blow off steam than well he drives out there puts his music on okay i get that i think he's smoking a joint and drinking a beer exactly out there he's sorry he's not supposed to do (laughs) i'm sorry if you are doing if you are smoking a joint and drinking a beer why do you need to dance to let off steam (laughs) yeah i thought that was the idea so huh I mean, I don't under, understand. I, I just did not understand that. And then all, you know, all the crazy stuff he was doing, like he's, it's almost like he, except he's not naked. He's not Miley Cyrus. He's, isn't he kind of like swinging on a wrecking ball like well, thing? Well, he's, he's, he's doing a gymnast routine is what it is. And, and angry dancing to this, you know, this music, you know, that, you know they're never hey. going to touch me. They're never going to get on me. You know, oh. I, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I didn't get it either. Oh, Trey, you can totally cut this out, but I gotta say it. I'm so, I'm, I mean, I'm happy. Wouldn't it have made more sense instead dancing that he should be out there smoking a joint, drinking a beer, listening to his music, and maybe masturbating instead of dancing? <laughs> I, I guess. I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I would, I would assume that would be more productive and probably more true it, than what would actually happen. And I mean, I don't know if the dance was supposed to kind of be. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is actually out there. I've read that in other places and I had never thought of that before until I I read that again, you know, doing research for this podcast. And I watched it this time and I'm like, oh, this is really awkward and weird. I mean, I think that's what it's supposed to be without. I mean, again, in a time when you couldn't go there and do that in a film, and, and, and not mean, that you really could now either, but you really couldn't then. They, uh, this is the way to get he, around it. But he and Willard reference that at often, the beginning. Often, yes, they reference that when they are eating lunch together, and they're like, "What? Well, what's Chicago like?" He's like, "What do people do around here for fun?" And they kind of reference that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I mean, I can see it that way. The whole point here is that he's he thinks he's alone is the thing. And what we learn is that somehow, and I don't know how, Ariel has figured out where he is. Because she stalks him. Is that it? Or is it because it's that train thing is nearby where she's going to take him and show him all that poetry? No, no, no. She was talking to uh, Rusty, Sarah Jessica Parker's character. And oh, they were yeah. like, remember where they were sitting there and they're closing he, down? What does he do at night? You're right. Yeah. yeah, what does he do? Well, these days he works at this mill and he has practice on this day. And he has gym class on this day. And he takes the bus on this day. Blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, she's been stalking him. Okay. So she, Before so, you had faith. Facebook to stalk people. <laughs> so she is stalking him and she finally confronts him. Mm-hmm. And I'll say this to me, this is some of the best acting Kevin Bacon does in the film. Cause he does not give her the time of day at all. And it's probably the best scenes Lori Singer gets even outside of what she gets to do with Lithgow later, which I think is a little over the top. This is much more of what I would expect. It's very understated. And she's like, she's coming on to him and he's blowing her off. And she's like, excuse me? Like, that has never happened to her before. You know, they make this joke about her, I think you've been kissed a lot, right? I think that's yeah. true, and I don't think she's ever been told no by a boy. And this is the first one that does, and I think that just lights a fire under even more. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that, because, I mean, how, like they say, she's been, like, and I, I assume they use that, that she's been kissed a lot. It's kind of their metaphor that she's wild, she sleeps around, she's promiscuous or whatnot. Well, I mean, good grief, when we meet the girl's boyfriend, the song plan is the girl gets around. So, oh. yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, they've already laid that out. 
And then, you know, you, you see her in, um, before, I don't know if it's before the tractor, I can't remember exactly when, but you see her and Chuck out in the field, you know, and obviously got they pants just, down and all, yeah. yeah, obviously they just got finished doing something and she's like, well, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to go away. What are you going to do when I go away? So obviously that kind of sets the stage that she's not really serious. And he's like, what do you mean? Why would you leave here? Yeah. And, and she's not really serious about that relationship and like, um, you know, she was saying about the train schedules and stuff that she, um, she's trying to get, she's trying whatever means necessary to get out of that town. No, I agree. I think that's exactly right for her. And, and, and the thing, the thing that gets me about this, this character here and the way she's playing it and stuff is she's coming on so strong to this guy. And part of that I have to believe is because she also knows he's a short timer too, that he's not, he's not going to be somebody that finds his place there and stays, you know? Right. And so she wants to get out too, and so she finds, you know, the the other rebel essentially. And that, yeah, they're kind of like kindred spirits or something. Yeah, even though they don't really get along, like at first, like there's there's definitely tension there, but it's more of just the attraction. Like they don't really get it. And then at this point, like I said, for Ren, he's he says how much crap go down. And he's just not into anything. He's ready to go. You know, he's he's ready to bail. And, well. I think too, in the back of his in the back of his mind, he doesn't want to get caught up in her little. He he, I mean, he's lost somebody too, just like her. Her, yeah. which I don't think he know, he might not know at this point. He he doesn't but, at this point. He's heard the story, but he doesn't know that that's her brother. But, and yeah, but I think he just doesn't want to get caught up in her kind of her kind of web. Mm-hmm. Not that it's deceitful or anything like that, but I just think he doesn't want to get caught up in her drama, as they say nowadays. You know, the thing that I have a hard time with Ariel here on is it would have been something if we could have seen what she was like before her brother died. You know, when when she was a good kid, before she went, you know, turned wild or whatever. Because, like, he he and Willard have that whole conversation about, you know, what's her deal, you know? And he's like, I don't know, man. She's just a preacher's kid trying to, you know, make everybody think she's tougher than she really is. So he's obviously known her her whole life, too. And he's like, yeah, one day she just, you know, started dressing slutty and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, that would have been good if we had somehow or another could have seen that. I don't know how they would have done it, but that would have been something to see. Well, I think their mistake is they tried to reference it a lot, especially in the scenes between um, the Reverend and his wife. Right. They try to re- reference it because he says, why do you, he tells his wife, why do you stick up for her all the time? And like, she even makes a point. She even says something when she's talking about how close they were, that she, she was even jealous sometimes. Mm-hmm. It, how which, close which, they were. Which led me to believe she was probably really close with the son, you know? I don't know if you took it that way or not, but no, that's, I, now I didn't interpret it that way. Okay. That's, that's probably just me. They don't say it. And there's nothing there. I just sort of wondered if that was what but, alluding to. But as someone who who has daughters, I think it. it I, I think it's kind of a female thing. I because I mean I don't want to say you know how women are. That sounds so sexist, and I'm a woman. But <laughs> I do. I do get kind of upset, and it, it's it's something to do with me. But I do kind of get upset, like when my husband pays more attention to my daughters a little bit after a while i'm kind of like okay you know you know i'm here too i know they're cute and they're your daughters and they've got your dna and everything but you know i am I'm, I'm here too i do cute stuff and, <laughs> um and um and i know it's not the same but i i mean i can see that 
I can see where a mother would say that. It's not you don't love. It's not you don't love your child. I, mm-hmm. I love my do- I love my daughters dearly, and I'm glad my husband pays a lot of attention to them. I think that's good for them. Um, but sometimes, I, I mean, I can understand where you you you're seeing this young. Even though it's your daughter and you love her, you're seeing this younger woman having. Even though it's not anything sexual or anything sick, you see right. them having this really close intimate relationship with your husband and and even more so than someone that is like an affair or an or an outside party you that's his daughter you can't ever replicate that no matter what you can't ever replicate that relationship so i could see a mother saying that i bet there are mothers that are like yeah i get a little jealous about that but they're just we're just like her we let it you know we let it go well the thing that that i like here about this and part of this is just knowing the other performance lithgow was doing at the time in terms of endearment is a character that has an affair that's you know part of the deal he has an affair with you know spoiler alert he has an affair with Deborah Winger in that film, and and it's she because her husband's having all kinds of affairs. She decides to have one with this guy, and he's just beaten to death about it. He just feels terrible about it and stuff. And I feel like what he's watching here is that I had this great relationship with my daughter, who now has shunned me for all these other men, and moreover, the kind of men I don't approve of that aren't me. Why would she choose somebody that's not me? I mean, he even has this whole thing that you know he's got the town council over there talking about the seniors are trying to organize a dance and we're not going to let this happen. And, you know, and he's dealing with that one deacon and the chief and, you know, the principal and all this stuff. And meanwhile, Ren sneaks in. <coughs> <coughs> Hold on. <coughs> <coughs> meanwhile, Ren sneaks Ariel out to go with him and Woody and Rusty to, you know, the big city and go to the country bar to hang out for them. Yeah. Right? Honky tonk. Yeah. And they, and they go honky tonking and that's what she tells him the whole bit about her brother and the bridge and stuff. But when she gets back the next day, she's sitting there doing her homework at the kitchen table and he, you know, they're having an argument and it's all about, you know, where were you last night? And, you know, what am I going to do with you? And I love how Lori Singer plays. She said, there's nothing to do with me, dad. I am what I am, you know? And I don't know. I I just liked it, but I got that whole feeling there too. That is like, Hey, I pay all this attention to you. You used to pay attention to me. What happened? When did I get thrown over for this Ren McCormick or the, you know, some other boy or whatever or Chuck or whoever. Yeah. And I don't even know that he knows about Chuck. That's the thing. I don't even know that he's aware of that. He just blames everything on Ren McCormick. But the poignant thing to me about the scene and what really gets it for me is when she says something to him, she's being a smart aleck and he just pops her like right in the face. And it's like, I mean, it's like a showstopper. And I don't, there's nothing in the behind the scenes that says it or whatever, but the way Diane Weiss reacts to the way that and the way Lori Singer reacts to it makes me think that they weren't told that was going to happen. You know, that they were let in on that after the fact maybe or something, or he snuck it in somehow. Cause it is, it's, it's hard to replicate genuine shock. You know, and yeah. that, that's the look of somebody that didn't see that coming at that moment. And oh, I, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that, but I did think that it was a correlation. I did see the correlation between when he did it and and then when um, Chuck did it, and she went all Carrie Wonder Underwood on his truck. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool because I, because I, I, I was a little shocked when Chuck did it. And I was just mad at Chuck because he was like, "Hey, I treated you decent. Like, no, you don't just treat her decent." Yeah. Yes. Yes. She might be the town floozy, but she still deserves to be treated with respect and like a like a lady and like a person. And so you can't just 
say, hey, I treated you decent. What's your problem? And then he does that whole, I was, I was done with you anyway bit. But the, the whole setup of that is that all these things cascade at the same time. you know. But I thought the correlation between those is how she came back and, like I said, went all Carrie Underwood on Chuck, but she didn't. She didn't fight her dad. Well, she didn't like come back and fight her dad. She didn't at that time, but she did later because after she takes the beating and Ren kind of makes her feel better and all this kind and stuff about it, she goes to the church, you know, and um, she's there and she's listening to her dad work up the sermon and she, you know, she confronts him and this is one of the deeper parts of the film and it's something I wish if Lori Singer had played a little more subtly, like the way she starts it and kept it that way, it would have worked better for me. She just goes so over the top by the end of it, but she starts off with that whole, I see the stage, I see the characters, what's going on. And he tries to explain to her, well, you have to put on a little bit of show to get people to pay attention to Ariel. That's and every preacher well, I know says that. They're like, you know, I'm not real comfortable with it either. Well, no, but, she says yeah. she says it's all a show. Yeah. She tells him initially <laughs> she goes, it's it's all a show, and then he explains <clears throat> he explains how yeah, you like you said, you got to put a little showmanship to keep them intrigued, to keep them interested and stuff, and it kind of goes from there. And it and it cascades down where she starts talking about you know, what she really reveals to him is dead. I'm hurt and messed up just as bad about Bobby as you are. And you don't seem to get what I'm all about. All you want to do is control who I am. And that's not knowing me. That's not, you know, being my parent, that's being my jailer essentially. And then she drops that bomb on him. You know, I'm not even a virgin and he just loses it. And Lithgow has a certain tone in his voice when he gets angry and starts yelling that it's, you can tell he's the kind of person that doesn't raise his voice often, but when he does, it's that you know, people would listen to it. And mm-hmm. I, I get, I don't know. It just, it's just chills running up that scene between them two. It's very, very good. Um, and I think a lot of it is because Lithgow is so good in it. And while she's histrionics there. He is. And I, I have to say, I think he, I, he was really good casting for this role. And like I said, I don't really have a problem with the cast or the acting or even the writing. It's just this plot to me. Sometimes it's kind of lame and stupid, <laughs> but, um, but I think he was a really good and he play and he, and you hit it on the head there. He played this whole character with kind of a, Kind of, kind of low key, like you said when you said when he's the person who yells and you would hear it. He like when he saw her at the um, at the burger place or whatever. He just gave her the money and walked off. Didn't, didn't, and he and he's such a good actor. He doesn't have to play it like that. He doesn't have to say it like that. You you could just see the disappointment in his body language and on his face. Yeah, and it's all it's he, all in his face, and and it's also and, too. We we miss one part there before the confrontation with Errol. After he slaps her, he's sitting in church and he's just sitting there suffering. Yes, and his wife is there, and they have that little talk. And she says, "You know, I've been a minister's wife for twenty years. I've watched you just lift congregations. You know, blah blah blah. But you suck at the one-on-one. <laughs> you know, like you're not any yeah. good at relating to people outside of that pulpit anymore. And moreover, your daughter. And that's the the problem right now. And I thought that uh, the way he looked on his face was just devastated. And then, you know, a, a few days later to have his daughter come in and drop on on him that, you know, I'm not even a virgin, dad. You know, you think you're protecting me and it, the, you're not. And uh, just the horror on his face, you know, and uh, bookend perfectly by the scene right after 
you know, because it, it was set up in just a little piece of dialogue that's just kind of jammed into this thing somewhere. If you're not paying attention to it, you're like, what, is, what has it got to do with the preacher and this guy talking about books at the school? I don't get it. But they're talking about, oh, there's books at the school we don't need. And so this one deacon and his wife have decided they're going to burn all the books in the library that they find inappropriate. And he runs out there because somebody calls and tells him, tells the church secretary about it. And he really has a change of heart right there in front of everybody, right? Like from the beginning sermon, you would think he would have been for such an activity in the right context. But yeah, because they even say it when he meets Ren and he yeah. talks about a book and I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but he's talking about it and Ren's like, Oh yeah, I, re- I read that. And he's like, it's a good book. It's a classic. And and he and the, I think it's the deacon and maybe his uncle or somebody is like, oh, there's no room for that that book in our town. So that kind of mm-hmm. to to pardon the pun, but that kind of bookends his <laughs> transformation. Well, it is it is the kind of you know one on one screenwriting that you hope people follow through. You know, it's Chekhov's book. You know, it's going off in the third act now. They've set it up. So, and I like the his his little speech here though. It's like, who elected you all to sit in judgment and do this? And then you almost see him look at himself going, well, I, I suppose I did when I sat there and told you all he was testing us and you better be ready. You know, it's like he realizes that he starts preaching to himself a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I liked the moment. Again, I thought it was well played by Lithgow and he sends everybody home and he's trying to clean up the mess. And, you know, there's his wife and stuff. And he realizes this is this is a mess. And so he ultimately has... Uh, you know, he's going to sit on this town council meeting where Ren has to go and, you know, convince them to let him have a dance. Right. And Bacon has talked about this, that like this scene made him literally sick to his stomach to try and do, because it's just not something he would do as a person. His personality is not like, and it made him really nervous, like even in, you know, actual life, which is sort of crazy to think about. He's an actor, right? But uh, I don't know. I've always liked this scene, though. I like the fact that Ariel tries to set him up with some help, and he, you know, he starts throwing, you know, psalms and David dancing back at the preacher and the town council and stuff, and to let him know that not all dancing is for sex and all this stuff. I mean, I realize that's what you guys think, but we just want to have some fun, and what you're doing is causing us to go and have reckless amounts of fun outside. I mean, without saying it, Ren is saying, if you wonder why your kids are all acting out of their minds right now, it's because you guys are trying to lock them down so much. And I think that's what the point he's trying to make. Yeah. He's trying to, he's trying to explain that the oppression that they are inflicting on their kids is not working. In fact, it's making it worse. And it goes back to what I said about, about most people I know who try to control their kids. It never turns out well. Especially when they're like a teenager or in college, it never, ever, it it just, it always ends up either like in drugs. And I'm not going to say always, because this is just a handful of people I know, Mm -hmm. but it, um, it can, it could end up in drugs or alcohol or, um, pregnancies or marriage or God only knows what. Well, and I mean, that's the thing that's, that's been the whole you know lesson of this whole film so far is that everything they've tried to keep these kids from the kids are still involved in. They still listen to their music. They still dance. They still talk about sex. They still have sex. There's, you know, they still do drugs. They're still, you know, they're doing well, all it's stuff. like his, his wife said, um, when she's taught, when she's talking to him, uh, when she's, talking to him about the one-on-one relationship. She said, do you not remember when we were young and we could just look at each other and get turned on? She goes, what are you going to do now? Like 
poke their eyes out. Yeah, they're laying in bed together, and he's you know sitting there trying to figure out what to do, and she says that to him, and I love that because it's just that. Again, Diane Weist only has a little part in this. Like she's very small in this whole thing, and she's so meek and quiet. But when she says things, it's so resonant. And the way she plays off of Lithgow, I mean, they look like people that have been married for twenty years. You know that they they had that kind of relationship, and that's a great point. And even though it doesn't go his way at the town council, you know, his buddy at work says, "Hey, right across these tracks here is another city, and you can use that if you want." He decides to go to the reverend's house, and they have this, you know, sit down heart to heart where he talks about his father dying, and you know, the reverend talks about his son dying, and that we don't really get much of the conversation other than just the tail end of it. And it's like when they walk, you know, when, when Ren's walking away from it, they've developed a respect for one another because they finally sat down to listen to each other. That, I think that's sort of the, the message there is that, you know, he thought Ren was just a troublemaker, city boy from out of town. And Ren thought this is just another stuck up conservative country preacher that doesn't get what I'm all about or what kids are about or anything. And then the reality is much more in the middle. And I, I, I like that. I, I did too, but... I did not think it took them two hours to get to that point. And I'm, I, and it just kills me that I'm like, no one, that's what I have with the plot of this thing. None of these parents, I, and I guess maybe it's cause I didn't grow up in the early, you know, maybe cause I wasn't a teenager in the early eighties. So if I'm, so maybe I can relate, relate better if I were 10 years old, if I were 10 to 15 years older than I am, but I just don't, you know, I just don't understand that the parents just didn't didn't think to talk, to, you know, to talk to the kids and give them, the, you know, say, okay, okay, or his uncle, okay, Ren, what's really going on? It's just saying, oh, I heard, you know, I heard there's trouble up at school and it, I'm blaming you. Instead right. of saying, hey, you know, Redneck Chuck is setting me up. He's a bad apple. Well, and I mean... He couldn't be that good. He's running around in a truck with deer antlers on it. I mean, <laughs> the whole town couldn't have thought he was like this little innocent choir boy. Well, I think even beyond the Chuck stuff, it, it, and the problem with this is this is written from the point of view. This film is from the point of view of the kids. The kids are the developed characters outside of the minister and his wife. None of the other adults have any of the development that you know, they do. And, the reason is, and part of it is, this film is targeted to who? Teenagers, right? And what's the plight of a lot of teenagers? Parents just don't understand. I mean, it's a few years before that song, but it's the same idea. And they keep playing with that. The difference in this film and, you know, ones like Pretty in Pink or, you know, 16 Candles is another good one where the parents just seem to be totally absent from the, you know, main character's life or whatever, is in this one, you actually see the parents evolve because they do that thing you're talking about. They actually talk to them. And I don't even think you have to be growing up in the area. You just have to go with what this town and this story is. And if you, if you go with it, then it becomes, you know, it's easier to follow it. I think if, if they sell it to you, but you're no doubt. I mean, the parents are absent from these kids lives in a big way. And that's kind of the point that they think they're all involved in their kid's life because they're controlling them, but really they have no idea what these people are about. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. And so we finally get our dance that's going to happen at the prom. But of course, we have to have one last dance with Chuck and his goons who just decided to show up for. Uh, why did they show up to crash the party? I guess they were against dancing. They were all about, you know, drugs and having sex, but no dancing, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that makes so much. No, I, I think it's played that way. The problem is, like, he needed to have at least one line. One line where you're like, you think you're going to, you know, steal my girl? You know, as cheesy as that is, I needed him to at least say that. Because I didn't, I thought he was done with Ariel. <laughs> it's what he says when he, you know, kicks her in the stomach and drives off. I'm done with you anyway, you know? And so I don't, I don't know why he would show up with his goons to take on <laughs> Chris well, and Kevin Bacon. This is my interpretation of Chuck, is that he, he's probably a little insecure. <laughs> he's, uh, he's been the big man on campus for, for four years, apparently, or however long he was in high school. And he um, and now this new kid's coming in, getting all the attention. This girl that he was, quote unquote, done with is now paying all attention to him. So, and then all the kids are like sticking up for him when, you know, he, if you notice when they're doing the stupid dare, the tractor playing chicken with the tractors. Yeah. And I was like, why would you play chicken with the tractors? Those things don't go more than like 10 miles an hour. <laughs> I, I mean, I, that just so you're still back on, at the tractor scene. So. <laughs> it just dawned on me as I'm talking about that. But anyway, anyway, back to Chuck. I think that you notice how all the kids like, Willard and um, the jock and yeah, yeah. Rusty and all of them are all on um, are all on Ren's side. The only one that was really on Chuck's side, and it was probably by duress, was Ariel. Mm-hmm. You know, so when they're doing that, and you know, like Willard is trying to teach them how to how to do, how to drive a tractor, and that, and they're all telling him, "Oh, don't worry, Chuck's a wuss. He's going to give up. He just talks a big game." Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah, and so. I just think that he really got insecure. He really got threatened by Ren. And I, I agree with you. Why didn't Ren just play it like, I don't really care? So I think he had to exert his power because it was him and his goons who were who were um, putting, you know, joints on Ren who were getting them in trouble. Then I needed the rest of the guys to come outside and fight with Ren and, and Woody or when uh, Ren and Willard and beat the crap out of those guys, not just to be those two guys, take out the five of them. Like they're freaking Bruce Lee all of a sudden, you know, like that, that was a little weird. I'm like, those guys would have gotten their butt kicked. That'd have been like, if, if, uh, you know, um, uh, what what's the kid's name? The Jesse Plemons on Friday Night Lights. The um oh, uh, Landry. Yeah, that'd have been like if Landry decided to go take out the Riggins boys. That would have ended badly. Okay? <laughs> so I mean, there, there's no way that that would have gone. That Willard looks like he probably handled himself in the fight. Chris Penn's a big dude, but. I, the, no, that wouldn't have gone down. But you know, whatever. It's it's to give him one last hero moment because that's what we want, right? You want him to deck Chuck in front of Ariel, then you know sweep her up off her feet and go inside. And I thought this was a party. Let's dance, you know. And that that's really how it goes. I mean, the last thing is just a big music video of Footloose with all of them. You know, all all these kids who've been oppressed from dancing. By the way, man, they're a hell of a chorus. I, I know. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I was. I was watching the end of it. I was like, those two girls behind them. I'm like, they've got to be pro- just the way they were swinging their dresses the and kicking their legs. I, I'm like, I think part yeah, of that they is were- that's a trope now because of this film. You know, I've just seen it done so many times now that I'm I'm jaded to it that it could happen. But at the time, I get that like that would have been an exciting moment for everybody in the film because it's the same with Greece. Everybody in Greece can dance and sing too. Yeah, but it's different. It's different because it's a musical it's kind of like uh, oh on a side note i'm sorry but um i'll talk to you about it later but i just realized that the dude who plays the little snowman in um 
Frozen is in the Book of Mormon. Oh. <laughs> and I've been, I've been YouTubing it, but anyway. Um, no, it's just, it's a musical, and I, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like you don't watch a Disney movie without expecting a princess to be able, and I know they're animated, so it's different, but, well, you know, same you know, idea. I, I get you. There comes an expectation, but even so, I think this is still a musical. I think this film was made because Grease was a hit. It's one of the reasons this film got greenlit. You know, see, I don't, I don't think of this as a musical. I, I, I get what you're saying, where it's more like a big music video. Mm-hmm. But I don't think of it as a musical. I, there's not. I mean, you don't really get the big choreograph. Um, scene until the very end. It's either the beginning where you just see everybody's feet, or you get the big choreographed scene. I think I think of it as a movie with a lot of really popular music in it. I don't know, and I mean everything's kind of like a vo- a voice is you know it's kind of like a voiceover. It's not them singing it like in a Disney movie, right? Or, right. In like, or like Grease would be. You're, or you're like right. Grease. Yeah, it's not the same thing, but it, it you hit it there as it plays like a music video, like I've been saying. But I have to remember, in 1983, 84, nobody really knew what that was. Like, it was still a new thing. That was still new to pop culture and the world, this idea of music videos. So that that's another reason this film probably is made the way it is, is because that was the new hip thing. Kids will dig it. And, and granted, that's what we've wanted to see all along. We want to see Ren lead the whole town of kids in a big dance, and they have a big dance, and everything's cool, and then it ends on a you know cool love song. And that's that's what we wanted, right? We They're all together dancing the night away. And you know, we've mentioned I mentioned the plot summary. While the dance is going on, and presumably while the fight with Chuck is also going on across the tracks or whatever, the preacher and his wife are watching all of it go down, and they're like relating to each other on a deeper level too. I thought it was neat to include the adults at the end of it because oftentimes this kind of film, like the adults would have had their last scene ten minutes ago, but the bother they they decide to keep them in it, I think, is pretty cool. Yeah. I- it was, but I think it. I think it was cool because you could see kind of he wasn't going in to break it up. He just he wasn't really there to check up on his daughter or anything like that. He was just really there to feel. Mm-hmm. Again, so I thought that was a really good scene. Oh, yeah, it was great. And I think it, like a, I said in the summary there, it's you can tell he sort of he and his wife have learned to deal with their loss and the fact that their daughter is growing up and that sometimes the kids just want to have fun. And that's the whole the whole point. They go and have a, a big time and it ends on that big arousing number. So, well, and I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn ratings for the film. So what are yours for the 1984 Footloose? Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but do you take into consideration I did not see this as a kid, no, I, and I was not a teenager in 1984, and I'm seeing this for the first time from, like, 34, 35-year-old eyes with two small children in the 21st century, but, the, oh gosh, this is just the lamest movie. I know why, I know that. I know what happened to Carrie Bradshaw before she moved to New York, and thank <laughs> God, she bought some Manolos and not those hideous shoes they were tapping their toes to at the restaurant right after Ariel's near-death experience. So, with that being said, I give it one small popcorn but extra butter. 
Wow. <laughs> um, I I obviously think a lot more of this film, and it's not. <clears throat> and it's not because of the 80s kitschiness of it or whatever. I actually, I the thing that makes this still work for me today is Lithgow. I think if that performance had been wrong, this whole thing would, would just be the fad, as it were. I think watching his evolution as a character, watching the way he plays it, makes it a much better experience and, and one you can enjoy. Even if you don't know the time period, you can't relate to it. I think watching him is good. Granted, if you're you know younger than, than us, if you're in your 20s, younger, stuff like that, this is not going to speak to you at all. This is going to seem like a relic. And maybe you should watch it with people that are older so you can kind of get the reference of it or whatever. But I still think the story works in a lot of ways. And a lot of it is Lithgow. And it's also Bacon. I think he's fabulous in this. And... Again, I like Kevin Bacon. I have a hard time thinking about things, even movies that are not good that he's in, where I don't think he at least gives a good performance. So I, I like this one a lot more. I'm going to give it a large popcorn with with the butter. I think this is a, a fun one. And if you're into you know the, the Rat Pack kind of films from the 80s and stuff, this one is not one of those, but it falls in the same time period. Should be something that you at least put eyes on once. But we'll come back to this in a week, Anna, though, because we get to come back and see, okay, 20 you know, plus years later, they decide we're going to remake the thing and we'll talk about all the things they went through to get it remade. But you know, was this ripe for remake? I think that that's a wise idea. I think there's definitely a story to tell here for the modern age, but what do you think? I mean, is somebody who this didn't necessarily work for, is this the kind of film that you think should be remade if they're going to remake stuff? Uh, and they always will for the younger age. Oh gosh. That's a hard question. I'm excited, yet a little bit scared of the remake. I really am at this point in time after watching this. But I will, when you were doing your recommendations, I did think of this. This is one movie from the 80s. I know I talked about the shoes and the fashion kind of. But technology-wise, this didn't really bother me. Even something like Clueless, where it's really so 90s, that mid-90s technology with the big old cell phones and everything. That, what, going back watching that, that does not stand the test of time for me, even though I loved it as a teenager. But um, but this, technology-wise, though it was in the 80s, it really, I really didn't pick up on that. Or it really didn't seem weird, if that that makes any sense. So I think that's one reason it it does stand the test of time. Whether this should be remade, I don't know if it depends. It depends on who the second movie is trying to reach. Is it trying to reach people like my age or older? Yeah, it might resonate a little bit, but I really don't think this is going to resonate with anybody under 30. Well, I'll tell you now, it was made with the intent of reaching the young audience and that's clear in who they cast and how it's played and stuff. We'll talk about that next time, but it was made to reach the young, young audience. And now we I, get, I just don't see with the kids today, I, I sound like I'm 90 years old, but um, I just don't see it resonating. That's one issue I had with that. And it's the overall theme of the movie. I, into in, if they and I don't know where they set it, what time period, but if it's set in 2011, 
it's not going to resonate with the younger kids. Well, we're going to we'll see about that when it comes around cuz I remember going and seeing the thing when it came out. I was very curious about it and I'll talk about my experience with that on the next show. Folks, thanks for joining us in this latest episode of Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplayedpodcast.com slash movies. You can also find links to our Facebook, Twitter pages. And of course, if you like the show, leave us a positive review on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast. For Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for joining us for Filmstrip's Footloose series. You know what else we could do? We could, we could start winning our nightclubs right there in the church, huh? <laughs> That's it, man. Dance! We could have a dance! All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and is used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.